We can take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 3. We're going to look at 12 through verse 21. So we won't quite finish the chapter, but kind of the thought probably here as it runs through the narrative of Nicodemus, what it is, the necessity to be born again, as well as, I think, and there's some debate on when John starts to give some uh, editorial notes, uh, where, um, whether that's in verse 16 or later. It doesn't matter too much to us. But we're going to see how this ties into what the Holy Spirit is inspiring the Apostle John um, to write to this audience and by extension to us this morning. But let's read together. John chapter 3, starting in verse 12, uh, 1 through 11. Well, last week, if you were here, we looked at Nicodemus and that interaction. Truly, you must be born again. We're going to see something else must happen, and that is going to be found in verse 14. So look, let's begin at verse 12. It says, If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does, not, does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been done by God. Father, we come this morning desiring that your name would be exalted through the exposition, the explanation, and the declaration of your word and the implications here found. Not only of who Christ is, the uniqueness, the purpose for which he came, the nature of God's love expressed through the sending of his unique, only begotten son. Help us see that truth anew. We're so familiar with it, but let us not treat it with contempt, but once again, glory in the realities that God has loved the world and he's done so by sending Christ. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, it's been said that God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. God loves the sinner and hates the sin. What do you think of that question? Like a lot of questions or statements, does God truly love the sinner and hate the sin? Is it too simple? You have to answer a lot of questions. What is love? When I'm saying that, because love can mean a lot of different things depending on how we're using it in context, especially within English. We have to decide what is the sinner? To say believer, because all of us that even profess Christ and have become new creations, new creatures in Christ, the old is gone, the new has come. I bet you're a sinner still. Does God love you when you sin? 
Or are we talking in that sentence, does God love the unbelieving sinner, but yet hate the sin? Let me throw a couple verses at you this morning. You don't have to take these down, just out of interesting notes. Because on this kind of debate, does God love sinners? And kind of, let's say broadly speaking, maybe you can define it more narrowly as the wicked. And so let's just talk about God loving the unbelieving world, someone who's not in Christ. Does he hate them or does he love them? Psalm 5.5 says that God hates the workers of iniquity. He doesn't say he hates their work. He says he hates the workers. Psalm 11.5 says God hates the wicked. There he doesn't say wicked deeds. He says the wicked. Proverbs 15.8 says God hates the sacrifice is of the wicked, which kind of deals more with their deeds and their actions. Proverbs 15.9 says God hates the ways of the wicked. Proverbs 15.26 says God hates the thoughts of the wicked. Proverbs 6.18 says God hates the feet that make haste to run to evil. A couple places, Malachi 1 and then picked up in Romans 9, probably familiar to many of you, that God has, yes, loved Jacob, but he has hated Esau. And then we saw it in Revelation, Revelation chapter 2, verse 6, that he hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And it would be hard to argue that by the end there in Revelation and all that judgment, there doesn't seem to be a love for them, but a hatred for them. Those are just some key verses you might look and say, well, that sounds really harsh. How can this be a loving God who, by nature, God is love? How can he hate people? And the verse probably most likely brought to oppose that understanding would be John 3, 16. Because it says that God has what? He has loved the world. So does God love the sinner and hate the sin? We're going to leave that out there and come back to it a bit, but I, I think this is helpful to think in the context of what do, what, what does, if it's John or if it's Jesus here with verse 16, what is being communicated by saying God has loved the world and in what way has he loved the world and in what way does he love the world? And we're going to chiefly see that in this context, in John 3, 16, he loves the world in the way that he demonstrates his love for the world by sending his son. And by sending his son, he's going to reveal salvation, but he's also going to expose judgment. Because although verse 18, it says, he who believes in him is not judged, we're going to see that there is a judgment in verse 19, that those who love the dark have shown who they are. And therefore, they, by nature, have been judged. Well, context here, chapter 3, verse 1 through 11, the whole question and answer of Nicodemus, we're, we're not really moving past that. We're kind of flowing from that. So just as a reminder, we looked at the new birth and we looked at some of the necessities that are pulled out in the new birth, this regeneration last week. That the new birth is necessary, that it is a spiritual birth that comes from heaven. That it is something that God does. We call it monergistic, that it is God who must bring this work about. And that out of that is going to flow belief. And that's where Nicodemus is, we kind of leave him. That, that is the struggle there where we left him last week is he's looking maybe for, hey, can you show us more? He says in chapter two, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, which again, that isn't saying that necessarily he is the Messiah or the prophet, but he, he knows that not a normal man could do these things. Jesus is special in some way. For no one could do these signs that you do unless God is with him. But he has not come to saving 
faith at this point. He doesn't quite understand who Jesus is and what his mission is. And so Jesus is going to explain even a little bit more and look forward and see Nicodemus, I think, looks back and understands and becomes a believer at a later date. But verse 11 states the reality that the issue that Nicodemus had was not more signs, not more information, but it was an issue of belief. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus said, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen and you do not accept our witness. It's a huge word for John. He's trying to show you witnesses, who Jesus is. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus, your issue is you've seen it, but you want more because you have an unbelieving heart, which you need change. You need a new birth. You need to be born again. Old Testament language, you need a new heart that has new desires, a desire to believe and trust Let me come to our passage this morning in verse 12. And we're going to see that there's still a way in which Jesus is answering Nicodemus. There's a flow here of Nicodemus being, you could say, a skeptic. One who is skeptical, unbelieving. And so Jesus carries on his argument. And we're going to kind of look at it from that angle with these three answers for the skeptic. In verse 12, he's going to give the answer that Jesus has this unique authority to speak on these matters. So the first answer for any skeptic, but even for Nicodemus here, is that Jesus is unique. We're going to look at here, verses 12 to 15, the uniqueness of the Son. The uniqueness of the Son. Which, of course, isn't John all about the uniqueness of Christ from the first three verses till the very end of this book. And he says in verse 12, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? The issue here in verse 12 is not so much that Nicodemus doesn't believe in birth. I think he probably takes for granted, yeah, people uh, get pregnant and babies are born. I look, I see the blades of the grass and the leaves of the tree blowing in a direction. I think he believes in birth, natural birth, that is. I think he believes in the wind. But the issue here is, what does he mean by you don't understand that these earthly things point to something greater? They pointed not only to the necessity for God to do something, but the necessity that for you to respond, you need new hearts with new desires. And so unless one is born again, verse 3, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is going, yeah, but how is that possible? Are you saying that there's nothing I can do? And Jesus is saying, absolutely. There's nothing you could do to be born naturally of your mother, and there's nothing you're going to be do to be born of above spiritually. He's saying you should understand this, and we didn't need to go to, into it all now, but you can look at the Old Testament and see all those passages where it is God who is ultimately going to work, particularly in the context of Israel. But the son has unique authority to give this answer. He has the unique ability to tell you heavenly things. Why? Because of where he is from. And he says, verse 13, that no one has ascended into heaven. But he who descended from heaven, the son of man. It's his way of saying, how are you going to understand heavenly things unless you ask someone who is heavenly? Which goes all the way back to the beginning of the gospel of John. That Jesus is from heaven. Heaven. He is God. He was with God. And he is from heaven. And he has the authority to speak on heavenly things. 
And that authority is demonstrated not only in the fact that he is coming from heaven, but you think back to chapter one, verse 51. If you look back a page or two, he said to Nathaniel, who was amazed at his ability to know where he was under that fig tree. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. There is one mediator between God and man, and it is Christ. He's the only one who can do it because he is the only one capable of being the perfect sacrifice, being fully God and fully man. You have a gospel like Matthew, which takes painstakingly kind of details. And Luke is similar to say he is human. He is a descendant of David. We noted early in John chapter 1, John is less concerned to, to prove that reality, but to establish he is not only God, but God in flesh, fully God and fully man. So in that way, I think you understand here, he's not only, no one has ever come, no one has ascended up there and came back and told you and explained these things, who could explain you how it works? And if you don't understand basic reality, elementary truths, how will you understand these heavenly things? And he does so in a way then, verse 14, to try to give an analogy to say, it's like this, something you would know. Nicodemus is a teacher of the law. He knows this story. And I think it's interesting as you maybe even look back and see some of the details of this story in the, the history of Israel. But he uses this from Numbers 21 to say, verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. I don't think it's an accident that this is the second must. And it's the same word that we'll see next week with uh, John the Baptist saying, I must decrease and Jesus must increase. You must be born again. It's absolute. There's no exceptions. And so must the son of man be lifted up. But he gives this allusion to Numbers 21 of the bronze serpent being lifted up into the wilderness. And just to give some context, if you haven't been in Numbers for a while, you go back to this event, Numbers 21, verse 4. It says, Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red, way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. And so they had been given daily manna from God, and they're ungrateful, to say the least. So Yahweh sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So they are judged, just like the world is judged. As we'll kind of see, verse 19. But then the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. Because we have spoken against Yahweh and against you. In this way, Moses, acting as a mediator, he, they're asking him, pray to Yahweh that he may remove the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed, he intercedes for the people. And then Yahweh said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard. So set it on a pole. And it will be that everyone who is bitten and looks at it will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on the standard. And it happened that if... A serpent bit any man. When he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. And this then and this even now for Jesus is to be this beautiful picture of God providing grace. And Nicodemus, you know this story, that God provides grace to undeserving 
sinners. And in the same way Moses lifts up that servant in, serpent in the wilderness, so Christ must be lifted up. It seems to be alluding to greater spiritual truth. I'm sure looking back, this idea in New Testament, we see it over and over again that Christ is lifted up, not only lifted up on the cross, and then you look to Christ, his work on the cross, but also that he's lifted up in exaltation. God offers sacrifice or salvation to a disobedient people, and he does so freely. Nothing they do here in this story, they don't do anything except for look to what Moses has already done in the sense that he's the one who did what God obeyed by putting that serpent, lifting up that pole. And they simply looked, or you could say this idea of John with believing. They looked, they believed. As I said, you see not only this lifting up of the cross, but even of exaltation. Acts 2 verse 32 says this, Jesus, God raised up again to which we all are witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having been received from the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, which you both see and hear. Peter proclaiming that Christ, yes, he died, but he rose again and he's been exalted and he's sitting at the right hand of God. It all points to this reality, this conversation, this challenge, you could say, to Nicodemus. Believe, look, be born again, and you then will see the kingdom of God. Because he's saying more than even Nicodemus do these things, he's explaining the reality that you must be born again and the Son of Man must be lifted up. And by extension, we understand that to receive salvation, you must believe. Nicodemus is being challenged. We are being challenged. These must, these necessary, these essential things must happen for salvation to take place. Likewise, we must believe if we are to be saved. We must look to the cross, look to Christ, just as Israel looked towards the serpent. It's the only way, it's the only name under heaven and earth by which there is salvation. And there's a way even in our culture that you can start seeing that people believe. There's been ways that you could say there's manipulation or we want to kind of encourage um, people that if they have ever said a formula or prayed a prayer, then don't let anyone ever question your salvation. And in that way, you can say, some people called it, you know, you look at salvation or the gospel as fire insurance or maybe something you did and, and you should never doubt. But it's kind of the heart of human nature to turn something that is what God has done. You say that it's centered on God's work and we'll see here in a moment, God's love. And we center ourselves in that and we make it something almost more magical. Say this prayer and you will be saved rather than understand this is what God has done and you should respond by believing. And so with that, I find it fascinating if you look at a 2 Kings 18 verse four and when Hezekiah is being a good king of Judah, which was rare, very rare, in Israel, uh, even very rare in Judah when the kingdoms are split. The things that he does to show that he is a good king is he takes away the high places, the set up to worship Baal, and he shattered the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. And interestingly, it says, and Hezekiah, he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel were burning incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan. They took the very thing that Jesus says is a symbol 
and they misunderstood. They thought, oh, this is something we, we should worship rather than the God who provided the salvation. Who provided the healing? Was it the bronze serpent? No, it was God who provided the healing. I think the same thing can happen today with the, if it becomes a man-centered view of the gospel rather than this is, look, this is what God has done. The focus is on him, not on some kind of magic or phrase or thing that you say or do. The question is, are you born again? And you must be born again. It's not simply fire insurance. It has an issue of new life, new heart, new birth, new desires. And really, I think for anyone, if you, that's something you've not experienced, if you go, well, there's, there's no difference between before I heard the gospel and after, then you have to ask certain questions because there should be some difference. It's not perfectionism. It's just simply to say you have new desires, a new love for Christ, a new love for truth. It's not that love that saves you. It's Christ that saves you. But there is fruit that flows out of that that you can look and say, wow, you have a new heart with new desires. The skeptic, one who's wondering, how is this possible? Maybe like Nicodemus, maybe like some here today, should look to the uniqueness of the Son. This is the Son, the Son of God, who can uniquely speak to the truth of what it is to see the kingdom of God, or in this case, we're going to see to have eternal life. How can I have eternal life? And this is the question, right? Well, he says, Whoever, verse 15, believes will in him have eternal life. So it goes right back into this. And I think everyone's fairly confident at this point, this is Jesus talking still. That whoever believes will in him have eternal life because he uses that phrase in verse 14, that the son of man will be lifted up, which is typically a phrase Jesus uses of himself. And so in the same way, believe and you will have eternal life. Jesus can say that because he is uniquely positioned as one both of authority and obviously in his mission to say that's exactly what he is here to do, which we'll see that in the next answer. So how can these things be so? We'll look at the uniqueness of the Son, but secondly, look at the purpose of the Son or the mission of the Son. And we get John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. As I said, we don't have any quotation marks in the Greek. And so there's a question here. Is this John giving a little bit of theological commentary? Perhaps. I don't think it matters that much. But it states this reality, this truth, that Jesus is here. Not to judge, verse 17. God didn't send him into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. This term, this nature, and this goes back to maybe answering that question out of the initial, in what way does God love the world? We saw early on, if you go back to chapter one, and we're introduced because world is used over and over again, and it is uniquely used, and it's associated with the darkness and with rejection. It says, chapter 1, verse 1, that he was in the world. So kind of the place, the sphere. It's, this is just a generic term 
that takes on a context of wickedness and sinfulness. He goes into a wicked world and that world was made through him. He's saying, hey, he made the world and everything in it and you and I, but the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. He came to those he made in general and if there's any kind of inference impl- implication there of as more specifically even Israel would be even probably more so but that's just talking about generically the world. He might be just saying, listen, I came into the world and the people that I made did not embrace me. And it's that wicked and sinful world that's rejected him that the Bible describes as enemies of God that he says, verse 16, God has loved the world. In fact, this idea of so loved, it's say to this extreme, to this point, he has loved the world that he gave something that you could say only he could give and so precious that we probably don't have a proper grasp of what is being done as far as eternity and the Godhead that he sent, he gave his only son. That idea of begotten back to chapter one, we looked at that, this uniqueness that he is the one and he is the only, he is the unique son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This movement, 15, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. That's why God sent the son. So you would have life, life eternal. That you might, in Nicodemus's terms, see the kingdom of God. We know from a long study on Revelation, does Jesus judge the world? Absolutely, right? Who breaks the scroll? The worthy lamb. Jesus himself is the one worthy to take back what is his, to judge the world. But when he sends the son in his first advent as a baby in a manger, when he humbles himself, He does so for salvation, not for judgment. Now he is coming back and he's coming in that second return in judgment. But here, he wasn't here to judge the world. In fact, the kind of point is going to be see verse 19. And when we get there, they're already judged because of their deeds and their actions. This love, how could you love the world? In fact, I find it interesting that it's John himself. If you go to 1 John 2.15, actually tells you and I, don't love the world. 1 John 2.15 says, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away. And also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. So this idea of that discussion of the world and the one who does God's will, who abides in the light, verse 20 and 21, has eternal life, will abide forever. Well, how do we bring these together? And this understanding of God loving the world, but clearly you see so many places where God hates what the world stands for. And we're even called to not love the world. I think a part answer is you look at the nature of love. And you and I tend to think that if you love someone, you have a fuzzy feeling inside, right? Think, I really, really like this person. I have this just warm connection. Um, I, I love them. 
That's typically how what we see displayed. And, you know, people even talk about that kind of falling out of love. But the love in Scripture, it's not used that way. In fact, the love in the Scriptures is used over and over again as a love of action. And so if you were to see someone on the street who does not believe this gospel, could you tell them God loves you? I think there's a sense in which you could say you could say that, but it'd probably be more accurate to say God has loved you. And by that, I mean the action he has taken is that he has sent his only begotten son. So God has loved you. Why? Because he did the most loving act in all of history by sending his only son. Love is a verb, as they say. And God has done something that has expressed his love. And in that way, he has loved the world, which is against him, did not embrace him, did not accept him, who are enemies. And even more so, you think of the original audience thinking through Nicodemus. He's not just loved you. He's not just loved the Sanhedrin. He's not just loved the Jews, but he has loved the world, even the Gentiles, which you can see over and over again in the Old Testament. This is what... Christ is to come, the Messiah is to come and bring salvation not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. Salvation will come through the Son for both. So I think in that way you understand, okay, yes, the most accurate way is to say God has loved you by what? By sharing the gospel and telling them he loved you by sending his Son as a substitute for you. But that doesn't mean that you are reconciled to God or that you have a loving relationship with God unless you believe in him. And so in that way, when we see the judgment, which is also going to be true, it's true here that he's not judging, but it's true he will judge the future. So this is like when you get into this, a little more complex than a simple statement, which is very, you know, one line, one sentence usually doesn't say and explain everything. But it's to say, God has loved by this act. And you can say that accurately, but also you can compel them to say, God hates wickedness and he hates sinners in a real and serious way throughout the scriptures. He's loved them by sending his son, but unless you have turned, repented of your sin and believed in Christ, then there's no way in which you can hold on or you can take those covenantal promises that God has promised to his people to his church. There's a greater promise here. In fact, you could even say God has so loved the world in this generic way that he sent his son and you could make a whole sermon and we could go on a whole tangent to say, and he has loved you if you are his. He has loved his church even more so because he has given you more than just sending his son. He has actually taken you, right? And he has, chapter one, given you the right to become children of God even to those who believe his name. Chapter one, verse 12. And so even more love than this has been given to those who believe in him. But that doesn't take away the fact that he has loved the world in that he sent his only son. The context is absolutely king. Think verse 14, verse 15. This illustration of the serpent that must be lifted up and whoever believes will have eternal life to give meaning. And then 16, which we know so well, but even that it's followed by 17. 
For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Gives that purpose, that mission of the Son is one of saving. Will he come in judgment? Yes, but that is not his mission in this incarnation, this first advent, this first coming. That comes later. But just because God is going to come in judgment again, it doesn't mean that we're not already guilty, that the world isn't already been judged. Look at verse 19. It says, and this is the judgment. Actually, verse 18. uh, He who believes in him is not judged. But he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So yes, God sends his son, but what it does is it reveals this reality, this judgment. And what it's really saying here is that if you have these terms of negative and neutral and positive, the world is not neutral. He's saying the world has been judged, and he's going to explain it, by their actions already. They're already in judgment. They're already in darkness. But if you believe... You move out of darkness into light, right? You've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Because verse 19, this is the judgment. That the light has come into the world, that Christ has come into the world. We've seen him as the light in chapter one. He's entered into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Verse 20, I think is common sense. Everyone who does evil hates the light. And does not come to the light lest his deeds be exposed. So he's saying, look, if you don't want to be discovered, if you want to hide, you don't run to Jesus. Because he will expose your wicked desires. Hence why you need a new heart. You need to be born again. And one who's been born again, who then is no longer under judgment... He who believes in him is not judged. Well, now you understand your sin has been paid for. And verse 21 can be true now of you that he who practices the truth because they've been born again comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been done by God. There is a response. Like I said, you kind of see whether it's verse 16 or 17, you, you see probably John giving his commentary, starting to use his terms of the light that he uses throughout to say and to explain and to argue. This is why you should believe Jesus is the son of God. This is why you should repent of your sin. This is why you should come to him. Because he will take that burden and he will take it from you. You will no longer be under judgment if you come and believe that he is the son of God. And you're free then to run to the light because you're not afraid of the light. That's the mission. So the uniqueness of the son, the purpose of the son, and see the judgment on the world. The answer for one who is skeptical is to look at Christ, see the uniqueness of who he is, not only who he is, but who he has to be to bear sin as the perfect sacrifice, as the perfect God-man. To see that he has been sent out of love to save, 
And also to see here in verse 19 21 that this judgment is something that has already been judged. The reality is we need new hearts. We must be born again. And then future from this point for us looking back that Christ must be lifted up. Respond that Christ has come for salvation even now that he is patient and long-suffering that all of his would believe before he comes in final judgment. But the reminder that we are, as, as the world, generically speaking, if you're not in Christ, you are already condemned that, all, condemned, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that all have loved their sin and not loved God. They've sought to exalt themselves. Yet God is so rich and he's so kind in his mercy that he sends his son, his unique, his only son to die. Why? So that he can be lifted up, so that you can look, so that you can believe that you might have atonement for sin and his sacrifice on the cross and have life, eternal life and entrance into God's kingdom. When all those things here, the Nicodemus would understand that how do I get into the kingdom? Because so much in Revelation, the kingdom language. How do I get there? How do I experience that kingdom, that eternal life? Well, you look to the Son who's lifted up. Does God love the sinner and hate the sin? That's probably not a good question. It's probably not a, a good phrase in the sense. It's probably too simplistic. It's just more complex. You've got to define the nature of love, probably define the nature of a sinner. Because I'm a sinner, and I would argue that Praise the Lord, according to scripture, he still loves me. But you want to communicate this reality that God clearly hates sin and he hates the wicked and those who embrace it. He hates the darkness, but there's hope because he sent the light into the world. He sent his only son. And in that way, in that action, you can accurately say he has loved the world by sending his son. And also what it means is as wonderful as John 3.16 is as a truth to everyone here from the time you are little and you've heard this verse till the day. It, it's an amazing thing that God has loved the world, especially when you understand who they are. Yes, that is all true, but it does point us to a greater truth, which is there is a way in which he loves his people with a covenant love that is even greater than this, that he goes beyond sending his son, but making you children of God, which of course is where John wants to push you. He wants to push everyone who reads the gospel of John into that loving relationship with Christ through faith and trust in him. So if you're skeptical of that, I would say, look to Christ. As we study this, keep asking the question, how do you see Christ exalted? How do you see him on this mission to save? And be amazed at God's love for his people, his love for you. And that, like I said, he even has gone beyond sending his son, but even in that, giving us the right to be called sons of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can see these truths. There's a way in which it can feel repetitive because we've heard the phrase so many times. But the radical way in which you show sacrificial and costly love is that not only Christ came,
but that he humbled himself to even to the point of death on a cross for us. That we might have eternal life by believing, by trusting in his name and his work. Encourage us that that truth just fuel our worship as we sing to you these songs that we are reminded of the truth that when we stand before Christ we are made faultless through his sacrifice and that as we'll sing that believing hearts will find promised grace that salvation comes through the Son, your Son. We just ask this in your Son's name. Amen.